Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hi, Radio Atlantic listeners. This is Isaac Dover, staff writer here at The Atlantic. Last week, President Trump upended trade negotiations with China by hiking tariffs on $200 billion in Chinese goods from 10% to 25%, making good on a threat he issued last Sunday, right before a Chinese delegation visited the White House. After a deal had looked imminent, trade talks had broken down. Markets worried China would retaliate, and now those worries seem founded. On Monday, China announced tariffs on $60 billion in U.S. goods. A trade war between the world's two largest economies seems to be here, and the risks are dire. On Friday, Bank of America warned that a trade war could, it said, cause a global recession. But, as the president infamously tweeted last year, trade wars are good and easy to win. Trump doesn't sound like a lot of presidents, but it's especially unusual for a Republican president to cheer protectionism the way that he does. The GOP had long championed free trade, but it's now led by a man who seems deeply skeptical of it. So today we're going to talk about two huge trade battles, one within the Republican Party, another between the U.S. and China. And with me to help explain both is a trade expert from the libertarian Cato Institute. Colin Grabo is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute's Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. Colin's research focuses on U.S. trade with Asia and domestic forms of trade protectionism. Colin, thanks for joining us here on Radio Atlantic. Well, thanks for having me. So let's start with this. Are we on the brink of a trade war with China? Is it here? Well, you could, you could uh, I think, argue that we're already engaged in, in at least a small-scale uh, scuffle trade battle with, with China. It looks like it's about to uh, increase in its intensity. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's safe to say it's already here in some form. What's the difference between a scuffle and a war? So, I, I mean, you can, you know, just like there are different types of wars, uh, the the Persian Gulf War, the last 100 hours was a war, but World War II was also a war. Uh, so it's just a difference of, of intensity. Right now we're looking at uh, tariffs that cover $250 billion worth of Chinese imports, and it looks like we're on the brink of bringing that up to cover everything, all the goods imports. So, uh, so the scale is set to intensify. So let's just break this down. When we're talking about tariffs, we're talking about money, like extra fees that are imposed to, for any imports and exports that are going on, That's and which make it more expensive to do trade with another country, right? Exactly. So tariffs are uh, taxes imposed on imports coming from another country uh, that are paid by U.S. consumers. And then typically, we also find tariffs on our exports in retaliation for those imports that have been imposed. That seems to be where we're headed here with uh, news from China that they want to increase the tariffs on their side. What does that mean for the economy beyond just the stock market responding and getting worried or uh, making bets on how this is going to go? 
Well, when a lot of people think about tariffs, they think about the things that they purchase at the store becoming more expensive, and that's definitely a big part of the story. Uh, what sometimes gets overlooked is that a lot of the goods that we import from other countries, including China, are what's called intermediate goods. These are goods that are used in the production of things that, that we produce in this country. So, for example, if we put tariffs uh, on Chinese steel, as we have, uh, that's used by a lot of companies uh, to build products, to build buildings, for example, and everything becomes more expensive, and that filters its way through the economy and has knock-on effects. Right. That, also that money uh, ends up, if if it's costing more money to build a building, then that cost is going to be uh, taken up elsewhere, right? And, yes. And, uh, or if it, uh, one thing that we hear about a lot is uh, parts for machines, right, uh, that are used in food production or uh, product production uh, here, if the machines get more expensive, then the products and the food is going to get more exactly. expensive, even if we're not importing Chinese eggs, or uh, but if we're using machines that use Chinese parts. Exactly. And also, not only do American consumers pay these costs, but it also makes us less competitive because the cost of our exports can go up because, again, the cost of uh, the production increases. So everybody that buys those products, including uh, consumers in other countries may feel the cost, and in turn, they may decide to forego purchasing American products and instead turn to cheaper alternatives from other countries. And the president does not seem to be concerned about that effect. Uh, he responded to the news about China increasing tariffs by saying that this is the wrong thing to do, that uh, tariffs can be completely avoided if you buy from a non-tariff country or you buy the product inside the, the USA, which he says is the best idea. That's zero tariffs. Many tariff companies will be leaving China for Vietnam and other such countries in Asia, and that's why China wants to make a deal. Uh, and then he says, if this goes on, there'll be nobody left in China to do business with. It's very bad for China, but very good for the USA. What do you make so, of that? So let's break that down a little bit. Um, let's take Apple, for example. President Trump says, well, you can buy from another country. Well, guess what? Apple doesn't produce its iPhones in other countries. It produces in China. Uh, so some of that, yes, you can avoid. They're all alternatives. But for some products, there's no alternative. You buy from China or you don't buy at all. Now, President Trump would like to see, for example, iPhone production be shifted to the United States or another country. Uh, but that's a very, very difficult thing to do. It's sort of a uh, long-term play exactly. here. Exactly. That, right? that, you know, to move entire factories, entire ecos industrial ecosystems is not easily done. Uh, furthermore, it's interesting because President Trump has indicated that these tariffs are a means to an end, to eventually getting a deal with China, in which case the tariffs presumably would be removed or at least uh, downgraded a bit. And so are companies going to undertake these shifts to another country uh, and, and build new production facilities for a tariff that theoretically is at least uh, somewhat temporary, um, at least in its intensity, if not, you know, will be eventually whole scale repealed. So that, that's something that, that has also grabbed me. So we're talking about what looks like it'll be immediate uh, and short term pain with the president hoping that it would lead to a, a bigger change in world relationships over trade. Uh, but China is playing poker here, too. Right. And uh, as you say, uh, and not just China, but thinking, well, if this is just a negotiating tactic, we can wait it out, right? Or, or am I getting that wrong? No, I, I think that, that China realizes that um, that the U.S. is also suffering from this. That this is not a one-way street. There are costs that will be imposed. And so far, the Trump administration has been 
they've attempted at least to be careful about uh, sparing consumer products, things that people typically buy in stores, and, and having the costs borne by, again, those intermediate goods and, and by businesses and companies. But if you're going to cover everything, well, then we're talking iPhones, then we're talking computers, then we're talking televisions, and your average American is going to see that, and they might be upset by that as well. And that's going to put some pressure uh, on, on, I think, the White House. How quickly would they see it? Uh, I, th- I think, you know, so if they're imposed immediately, then uh, I believe it takes something like two weeks for a ship leaving Shanghai to arrive in the United States. <laughs> so that uh, quickly, two weeks. So two weeks, but then of course iPhones, those go on an airplane. So that's <laughs> that's going to be um, much more, felt much more quickly. So by by next week, the iPhones could be up in price. That, that's, that's, yes, yes, that could happen. How did we get to this place where this is even what we're talking about? It seems like uh, this goes to deep skepticism that the president has had long before he was ever running for office about how trade works uh, that is in sync with deep skepticism that a lot of people in the country have about international trade, whether we should be doing it, whether this whole system that has been built up over the years, uh, not just in America, but with all countries over the world, is not something we should have been doing. Well, you're right. Trump has had uh, a longstanding uh, skepticism of international trade. Uh, remember, before China, his favorite boogeyman was Japan. Mm-hmm. And he, he even used the same terminology back in the 80s, said, you know, Japan was ripping us off. And why are they ripping us off? Well, it's because we import more from them than they import from us. And in President Trump's mind, imports are bad. Imports are points that are scored by the other team. And our exports are our points. And if you use that as a scoreboard, we're losing what the president fails to appreciate is that imports are a benefit of trade. As we already discussed, imports are often used to help build our own products. Also, they make our lives better. I mean, imports are the entire point of exporting. We export in order to get things in return. And I think you could even turn President Trump's argument on its head and point out, hey, we get 500 and something billion dollars worth of products from China, and we're only sending them 120 something billion dollars worth of, of goods. You know, who's really losing here? Who's getting ripped off? I mean, that's what we talk about, the trade deficit, Yes, right? exactly. Uh, which to the president uh, seems like something that is not in favor of America, the way the trade deficit is right now. Yes, exactly. That, that's his perception of, of how it works. Well, how is that, how, how does one get to that perception, I guess? Is it just a, a misunderstanding of the math here? I, I, that's that's the million dollar question. I think when it comes uh, to Trump's trade policy, what exactly motivates him? Clearly, he's surrounded by intelligent people that grasp trade and and know that uh, that's a fallacious uh, way of thinking about it. Um, but Trump, I think he's even said, you know, he believes what he believes. He's a tariff man. This is just a deeply ingrained, decades long held belief on his part that he's not going to be easily reasoned out of, uh, assuming he was ever reasoned into it in the first place. When the president was running in 2016, uh, the big debate that uh, Barack Obama was trying to finish up as it relates to trade uh, was about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, That was something that notably not only Donald Trump was opposed to, but Bernie Sanders was opposed to, and that Hillary Clinton, despite the fact that she had been involved in the negotiations as Secretary of State, said that she was then opposed to. Uh, Now we are going into another presidential election campaign season here and Bernie Sanders running again, opposed to it. Joe Biden running, uh, though he was one of the biggest proponents of uh, TPP, hasn't said where he stands on it right now. Uh, And other 
candidates in the field have been pushed on this issue of trade seem to be moving uh, among the Democrats more toward the Bernie Sanders position than the Barack Obama, Joe Biden position. When Trump came in to office, one of the first things he did was cancel the the negotiations. We weren't in the TPP, but he said we pulled out of the TPP. We sort of pulled out of the we'd, final stage. We signed it, but not ratified. <laughs> exactly. It, yeah. uh, now he's talking about getting in uh, more trade with Vietnam. Obama's argument, in part, about the TPP was that it was to counter China as a trading power. Do you think that this perhaps leads to uh, reopening a thinking about TPP with Donald Trump, or is that just? Uh, I think that's a non-starter with with President Trump. Uh, I don't I don't expect that to happen. So President Trump essentially, by withdrawing from TPP, I think opened up a big hole in the U.S. trade agenda, and he's tried to plug that somewhat. Uh, by reaching this alleged deal with China, which we have no idea what that would look like. And also, uh, there's been an effort to launch talks with Japan and get some kind of trade deal there, because, of course, Japan is the world's third largest economy. It was, And the president has a very good relationship with uh, Prime Minister Abe yes, in Japan. Yes. And uh, also, Japan was uh, the biggest, besides the United States, it was the second biggest part of TPP. So there was the logic there is that, uh, you know, you uh, get a deal with Japan and, and you, you, you plug part of that hole, uh, you fill part of that gap, uh, and you, you make up for some of the ground that's been lost. Uh, but I think that the odds of even that happening uh, are by no means certain. In fact, if I were a betting man, I'd say it's unlikely that a deal will be reached uh, before the next election. The argument at the core of it from Obama was essentially, this is the way the world is working. We might as well get ourselves in the best position as relates to China and international trade, and this is how I think we should do it. The core of the argument with President Trump is this does not have to be the way the world works. We do not have to have international trade like this. We can move away from it. We don't need to try to get the best deal out of a bad situation to him. We can just not have that situation. I think that what the way President Trump sees, uh, for example, TPP and some of these international trade agreements is that it's the United States essentially being tied down by the Lilliputians. And we're the United States of America. We're the world's largest economy. We should be dictating terms to others. And by getting involved in multilateral negotiations, we leave ourselves vulnerable to getting ganged up on. So why not take these countries on one by one, use our superior economic strength, uh, and bring that to bear? But I think, as we've seen since the advent of his administration, it's not exactly playing out that way. And is it that the train has left the station on this and the rest of the world is going to move without the United States? Clearly. Uh, Japan, for example... The, uh, the United States pulled out of TPP, and did the rest of the world stand still? No. Japan moved ahead. They uh, signed on to TPP. That's now a done deal. The other uh, members uh, have, have proceeded with it. Japan has also concluded and entered into a free trade agreement with the European Union. So they're all moving ahead. They're opening markets. They're getting new export and import opportunities. And the United States is treading water at best, if not falling behind. Let's step aside for a moment. And be back with more in a minute with Colin Grabo. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. 
And we're back with Colin Grabo of the Libertarian Cato Institute talking trade and Donald Trump. Let's take a step back and talk about what happened here with this issue of trade overall in the Republican Party. When TPP was being negotiated uh, in the years before that, you had people like Paul Ryan, other leading Republicans who were very much for open trade, free trade. This is now not where President Trump is and not where a lot of the Republican Party is. A lot of the Democratic Party uh, is not for uh, trade also, I should say. Um, and uh, they were in the TPP negotiations looking for, it was like 25 Democrats to just get them over the line with the Republicans. Uh, how, how did this change? How, how did this happen in the Republican Party? It's not just Donald Trump, right? Well, my own, my own armchair speculation here is that actually, I think in large part, it is Donald Trump. And this is a reflection of the power of leadership. And I, I think that Unfortunately, among many Republicans, perhaps the default setting traditionally has been for free trade, but it maybe it was a weakly held conviction. It wasn't a hill they're willing to die on. And along comes President Trump, and he says, let's blame our problems on China, for example, which is always great to blame someone else for, for our own problems. That's attractive, I think. And I think a lot of Republicans in private perhaps know that President Trump is on the wrong path, but they're also leery of, of, of crossing him. And I think that if President Trump was to do a 180 tomorrow and say, guess what? We're getting back into TPP. I've decided that's a great deal. Uh, the Republican Party would absolutely cheerlead him. I don't think he'd lose a great deal of votes if he were to do that. But what is that thinking that says, we don't think this is a good idea, what President Trump is doing, but we're, I mean, th that's a political uh, calculation. I want to ask you to get into that. But if there are people who sincerely believe that, how do they reconcile that? Do you think with what's going to happen in their home states, home districts, as what you see the effects of this uh, being come into play? Well, what's interesting here is I think we, we see any number of stories uh, out there in the media about uh, reporters that go out to the Midwest and they interview people from agricultural states and they say, well, what about this trade war? You guys mostly voted for Trump. You're bearing the cost of this. Uh, have you had a change of heart? And so far, prevailing sentiment seems to be no. We still back him. We still think that there's a pot of gold at the end of this rainbow. Uh, there's light at the end of the tunnel. We're going to come out of this thing in better shape. And they have just essentially placed their their trust in Trump, and they're willing to see this thing out and, and continue to bear costs. I was in Montana recently talking to the governor there, Steve Bullock, who is a Democrat, a Democrat who is looking to run for president against Donald Trump, uh, if he can get through what is a pretty big field. Uh, and he said to me a very similar thought of what he has heard from Montanans, although he pointed out that with the wheat production in Montana, if they don't get to export their wheat, uh, that Montanans would have to eat 400 loaves uh, a week, uh, as each one. Uh, so that's the stat that he came at me with. Uh, <laughs> that's what we're looking at here. Uh, just major, major impact, but still as it gets filtered through the political prism of things, not uh, not catching in the same way. Uh, we were talking a little bit about how Bernie Sanders and other Democrats running for president are on trade. I, I wonder, is there a difference between where Donald Trump is and where Bernie Sanders is, where uh, and Elizabeth Warren are, um, who are sort of the, the most prominent Democratic voices in taking apart what international trade looks like? 
That's an interesting question because I think, of course, if you were to ask Bernie Sanders or Senator Warren uh, their thoughts on Trump's trade policy, uh, they would try to separate themselves. They would not embrace Donald Trump's uh, trade policy. I think a lot of what a lot of Democrats would say is that they might do some similar things, but they do in a smarter way. Exactly what would make it smarter, I'm not sure. Um, my, my own speculation is that if we had a Democrat in the White House right now, or one of these nominees were to win, we'll absolutely continue to see bashing and criticism of China. The question I have is, would they engage in tariffs? Would they have used this tariff-driven approach? Uh, I'm skeptical of that. Uh, I'm not sure. And I'd love to see them questioned about that and where they stand exactly on these tariffs and their thoughts on the use of tariffs to dr- as a centerpiece of one's trade strategy. I can speak just to, uh, from knowing a little bit about where one candidate is on this, uh, Kamala Harris, who has said that she would have not been uh, for TPP and uh does not like NAFTA, does not like this new trade deal that the president has put forward as the NAFTA 2.0, but says she doesn't want tariffs. So that's where at least one Democrat running is. Uh, But if you look at the position, besides the question of what to do with tariffs, which seems like a tactic, uh, but the position of Bernie Sanders and the position of Donald Trump, do you see any substantive difference? I, I and clearly, they're both incredibly skeptical of the value of trade, and they both uh, they have this uh, attraction to the idea of America first and uh, looking out for American workers, and, and you know we should buy uh, domestic, uh, for example. So clearly, there are a lot. Of, I think a Venn diagram of the two of them would would show significant overlap. Uh, so the issue that you spend a lot of your time thinking about is something called the Jones Act. Uh, which we were discussing right before we started, was a Jeopardy question uh, recently, and none of the contestants got it. Uh, What is this? (laughs) This is something that I think to most people uh, sounds like uh, trivia that is even too low to get onto Jeopardy. Exactly, exactly. It's it's a shipping law uh, that was passed back in 1920. It says that ships or vessels that transport goods between uh, two points in the United States have to meet four conditions, and that's that the ships are uh, U.S. flagged and registered, that they are at least 75% U.S. crewed, at least 75% U.S. owned, and these vessels have to be built here in the United States. And what what caused it to be passed in 1920? Was it protectionism then? So it, it, this is, of course, in the wake of World War One, And uh, during World War One, the United States suffered from a lack of ships to get our men and our material and supplies from the United States to Europe. And so there was a perception that we needed to do something to shore up our merchant marine and that uh, if we embrace this kind of protectionism, that uh, it would ensure a, a vigorous and vital U.S. maritime sector. So 1920, shoring up our merchant marine is something that you care about in 2019. Why? Because this law uh, ends up increasing the cost of transportation, uh, which is something that affects all parts of our economy. Well, why don't you explain why that is, uh, how this is about shipbuilding, uh, but it's because of the costs that trickle down and filter yes. down, right? Yes. If they were, if you could build cheaper ships in another country, then companies wouldn't have to cover the costs for buying the ships uh, that would be as high, right? Is that basically what it is? Yeah, well, let's also consider the fact that uh, in the entire United States, there are 99 ships that meet those four conditions. These are large ocean-going uh, ships. You know, In the world, there are over 10,000 ships. So right there, you've taken 99% of the world's ships out of the equation, so that reduces competition. And then you have to buy these U.S.-built ships. Well, the problem there is that these ships are typically 
four or five times more expensive than ones built in a foreign shipyard. So instead of paying, say, $50 million, you're paying 200 plus million dollars. And of course, those costs get passed along to consumers. And transportation is a vital part of our economy and affects everything. Aren't you going to, if you got rid of the Jones Act, which is what you want to see happen here, aren't you going to put a lot of American shipbuilding jobs uh, out of the way. People are not going to have their jobs anymore. Well, it's funny you bring that up because actually just a couple of weeks ago, the uh, OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation Development, released a report on the cost of the Jones Act. And they said that repeal of the Jones Act would realize economic benefits of $64 billion. And furthermore, among the chief beneficiaries, U.S. shipbuilding. Uh, this has not been an asset for U.S. shipbuilding, in my opinion. If you look at Europe, there is no Jones Act there. And yet uh, they have, I think, vigorous shipbuilding industries. Uh, they have lost uh, some of their shipbuilding to Asia, but they found new areas to specialize in and they uh, have moved up the value chain, which is what I think would happen here in the United States. I just, I reject the argument that the country that has designed the iPhone, that can design rockets that land themselves, that can design you know, advanced Boeing jets, has nothing to contribute to the shipbuilding world. I, I simply reject that. And what we know is that the status quo is not working and U.S. shipyards are closing. The Philly shipyard, for example, has laid off two-thirds of its workforce over the last year. Even the with the Jones Act. Exactly. The status quo is not working. So when we talk about people losing their jobs, that's what's happening now. I mean, it seems to be a microcosm of this larger question of trade and protectionism, right? Absolutely. So you're saying that if there were a removal of this protectionist law, it would lead to maybe more shipbuilding. Yes. Uh, maybe more efficient and cheaper shipbuilding, which could create more jobs in the United States and in the meantime would uh, potentially lower costs on consumers in a major way. Yeah, I think that uh, when we look at protectionism, the idea is, well, we're sparing them from international competition. No, no, no. We're denying them international competition. International competition is what makes you better. Let's think about it right now. If we were to suggest the idea that all planes that flew between two U.S. airports had to be domestically made, people would think that's crazy. Boeing is not great in spite of international competition. It's great because of it. It's great because it has to compete with Airbus, for example. Uh, you take away that competition, and you reduce people's incentive to innovate and improve. Is it just that we're not looking at the math in a big enough way when we have these conversations that most people see the immediate cost. It's a, the, the basic way of thinking about this is that I'm getting charged less this way and not thinking, well, I could even be much less than that, but it's it requires a lot of abstract calculations. Exactly. The, the costs of any sorts of change are very readily apparent. We can see who the losers will be, for example, the people that have to face increased competition that will see some kind of disruption in their lives. But the, the benefits are more diffuse. They're not readily apparent. We, you can't say to someone, if this trade agreement is passed or if the Jones Act is repealed, you will get a job. You will personally benefit. That's not obvious. Uh, and then furthermore, we just have the more general phenomenon of concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. So when it comes to uh, the Jones Act, for example, People that benefit from the Jones Act or at least perceive themselves as benefiting from the Jones Act, you can be sure they're up in Congress all the time saying, keep this law in place. This is And the people who benefit are the shipbuilding it's companies. It's the shipbuilders. It's also uh, the people that crew these ships because they don't have to worry about foreign competition. And it's also the companies, the carriers that own these ships because they also don't have to worry about foreign competition. You know, down in Puerto Rico, uh, the Jones Act is mainly felt by the non-contiguous states and territories, Alaska, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, Guam. 
Uh, earlier this decade, there was actually uh, a case filed by the Justice Department against three of the four carriers that service Puerto Rico, the shipping companies. Uh, they found they were engaged in price collusion. They all got together and decided how to set prices. Uh, there were tens of millions of dollars in fines handed out. I believe five or six executives have gone to prison over this. That would be impossible without the Jones Act in place. And, and you're saying that if the this were not there and we were looking at a worldwide competition, you couldn't have that kind of... You, it would be extremely difficult to get everybody from around the world in a room. But yeah, if, if everyone's based here in the United States and there's only four of them, yeah, you can you can make those meetings happen. You can You can pull that off. Again, though, what that means is in the short term, you will probably see people lose their jobs. Some people will. I mean, that's but that's true of everything. I mean, that's true of Netflix. That meant that people, Blockbuster, lost their jobs. I mean, if tomorrow a cure for cancer was invented, people would lose their jobs. Oncologists would lose their jobs. There are always, you know, every example of progress you can think of involves someone losing their job. The iPhone was a job. I remember when I was a kid, we uh, used to go on road trips with my family. You'd have to buy a road atlas. When's the last time anybody bought a road atlas, a paper map? You know, people use their their phones to navigate now. So that's a, that's someone lost their job. Mine, right I don't there. know how I would get around. Exactly. I, I can't imagine actually sitting behind a car exactly. or behind a wheel, uh, trying to figure out. On so a, you show me something good in life, <laughs> I'll show you someone lost their job because of that. But we know that on net, we all benefit, and there are people that gain jobs, and we need to think about those people, those unseen people. You are having conversations on Capitol Hill about this. Is this something that is just an obsession of yours, or is there a uh, an interest in addressing it. Uh, I, there, there is uh, the good news about the Jones Act is that when people learn about it, they think, "Well, that's crazy. That's a bit outrageous. You have to build ships here in the United States. I mean, I can buy a car from another country, a truck, a train, a, you know, anything other form of transportation." And they I think people uh, grasp pretty readily this is unfair. This is unwise economic policy. So the bad news is people tend to be ignorant about this law. There, there isn't um, much awareness about it. But once you turn people on, I think you usually get a, a willing audience. People perk their ears up a bit. So do you think that this will change at any point soon? I think that are we going to go from having the Jones Act, which is, uh, according to the World Economic Forum, the world's most restrictive example of a cabotage law. Cabotage are these laws that govern the ability to transport goods within a country. Uh, are we going to go from having the world's most restrictive example to no Jones Act and no cabotage law? No, not overnight, certainly. But I think there's absolutely room for reform and refinement of this and modernizing this to bring it more in lines with 21st century realities. Here we are. We're at the cusp of a presidential election campaign getting really intense. We are also uh, getting into, again, somewhere between a trade scuffle and a trade war, as you uh, framed it. <laughs> We've talked about the dynamics in the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, how people are feeling it on the ground and how quickly they could start to feel things differently. When you put all those pieces there and you think about what that'll mean for trade policy over the next year and a half and potentially whoever wins in the 2020 election, where do you think that leads us? I can't, I'm leery of making predictions, but I'll tell you what I hope for. And what I hope for is that maybe the silver lining here is that we haven't really had a trade war in quite some time. And this can be a learning experience. And fortunately, we're getting a demonstration of the costs of a trade war. We're seeing people whose businesses are losing competition, their competitiveness, losing customers because of this. We're going to see, we have already seen consumers paying more for certain products. And I think the costs of the trade war are going to be driven home in a big way. And people may hopefully come to have a new uh, renewed appreciation for the virtues of free trade. It seems like as with many things with Donald Trump, we see 
what has been an academic discussion essentially on many many issues yes now tested and we can see what what happens and whether people like it or they don't absolutely absolutely all right colin graba thank you for joining us here on radio atlantic it's been a pleasure That'll do it for this week of Radio Atlantic. Thanks to Kevin Townsend for producing and editing this episode, and to Catherine Wells, the executive producer for Atlantic Podcasts. Our theme music is the Battle Hymn of the Republic, as interpreted by John Baptiste. You can find show notes and past episodes at theatlantic.com slash radio. And if you like the show, rate and review us in Apple Podcasts and subscribe in your preferred podcast app. Thanks for listening, and catch you next week.